My guest on this episode of P.S. Love is Luke Apiza, or as I like to address him whenever I send a package to his house, Dr. Luke Norman Apiza, MD. Luke graduated SMU in 2013. He is an avid rock climber, ballroom dancer, and scuba diver, which I can attest to all three of those. I've done them with him. He's good at all three, uh, and currently practices emergency medicine at University Hospital's Cleveland Medical Center, and will be starting his fellowship in wilderness medicine at Massachusetts General in July of 2021. We get all into that and why he's excited to do that. Oh my gosh, it sounds amazing. Uh, enjoy this episode with Dr. Luke Norman Pisa, MD, also one of my closest friends. <laughs> yeah, could also help people who already have it and just want to be syndicating it. Yeah. Uh, cool. Let's get started. Uh, how are you? What'd you get up to? Yeah, we got this Lacroix uh, sponsorship. Sponsorship. Yes. That you're talking about. Yes. yes love. Now, now right. sponsored by Lacroix. Uh, and that's really what, been. What that's been a lot of the past month. It's just been going through legal, getting the brand aspects mm. with the PS Love legal team, getting all that squared mm, away. Yes. But yeah, I think you know, it's a big step for the podcast, and I'm excited about that. Great. You know, my legal team has uh, <laughs> expressed a lot of appreciation for the, the steps that you've taken. To, oh, it's good to, to hear. It's uh, good to hear that this feedback time. from them. Yeah. 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 My people are uh, are very happy with your people. Uh, great. <laughs> what's a What's a typical day for you right now? What do you? Uh, my My impression of staying with you over the summer is like, you are working more than I think more than anyone else I know, and you're loving it. What What how would you describe a, a typical day? What, what goes on? I think, I think to an extent that's true uh, in that I am working a lot and loving it. Um, I don't know about, you work, know a lot of other people who also work a ton. So don't know about working more than them. Um, but I think you also caught me at a snapshot of my life that was extremely busy because it was the end of residency. It was starting my first real job as a, you know, all of medicine is like, please don't kill people. But then when you get to your first years in attending, it's like, now you really need to not kill people because there's no backstop of someone smarter than you who's not letting you kill people. Um, so that, those first months out are really stressful and I think more time intensive than other aspects of the process. And then applying for fellowship uh, was stacked on top of that and moving in with Tori into a new place for the first time and getting ready to move to a new location a year from now and getting all the financial aspects of becoming attending squared away. So I think you you intersected me at one of the busiest times in the last even five years. Um, and it's, it's slowed down a little bit since then, which has been really nice. I'm excited to when you come out to stay next summer and there is infinitely more time that we can spend. Fantastic. The, uh, you're, you're okay. That makes sense that there was an especially large amount of things that were going on, uh, for you when I was there this last summer. Uh, talk to me about the, the wilderness fellowship. Cause that's a thing that, uh, so for, for your career, for anyone who doesn't know, you did the whole pre-med track through SMU and then got into medical school and, uh, got into residency for emergency medicine, finished that, I think just a couple of, was that six months ago? And mm -hmm. now you've been working as a, as an emergency physician for uh, the last six months, making that big boy attending salary. <laughs> I, I still, I love the story of when you were buying that car and you, you wrote down your monthly income on the sheet of like, that that's, <laughs> and the, the guy thought you made a mistake. He was like, oh no, 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 you need to, this is not your yearly income. This is your monthly income. <laughs> you looked at him and was like, that is my monthly income. <laughs> like, oh, you, you make good money. That was a uh, surreal moment. That was very strange. And there were, you know, the weird piece is too, that's like all of that has been deferred like seven years after I guess. Yeah. Seven mm -hmm. years on the nose now since graduating uh, undergrad and graduating SMU. And all of that now has to go back into like catching up on retirement and like catching up on med school debt. But this, yes. But even though that's the case, and so maybe the reality of it in terms of like net global income is not as much, uh, the sticker shock is very, very strange. Yeah, that was a surreal experience. Um, oh, I have a, I have a question for you building off of this. I yeah. talk to a lot of people who uh, are trying to figure out what they want to do in their careers and are very motivated by money uh, when, when asked like a, a thing that they want in their careers to make sure that they're comfortable uh, with money. And I see a lot of those people gravitating towards medicine. What's your take on medicine as a career to make a lot of money, if that's your goal? It's a 
terrible idea. It's <laughs> if you want to reliably if you want to reliably make a big uh, if you want a big like sticker number, then it's great, and you can do that pretty reliably for now. With the changes coming down the pipe, probably in where the U.S. healthcare system is going to go, fingers crossed, um, that may change. It probably won't for a lot of the surgical specialties, but if you can reliably get into a good med school, match into a surgical specialty, match into a surgical subspecialty that pays well electively off of that, and you just want to print money the rest of your life, you can do it if you're willing to mortgage like, you know, 10 years of your 20s to like just studying all the time and just living in a hospital. Um, but if you don't love medicine, that's a huge sacrifice to make. And, you know, I am constantly surprised that I love what I do and I love medicine, but I feel like I am in the minority of my peers. And I think for, and this is borne out by the statistics, over half of doctors are dissatisfied with what they do. And anecdotally, it's like way more than that. So many people I talk to just hate medicine because they've been hmm. sleep deprived for like, you know, seven or eight years. And then they finally get out to like help people and do what you wanted to do this whole time. And you realize that it's a business like anything else. And like, you have to actively fight the system just to keep the patient's best interest first and foremost, much, much of the time. So, so I would say no. I would say if that's your goal for medicine, don't do it. <laughs> what a tragic situation to be in of not liking what you're doing and also sort of in this trap of, well, you're a doctor and you've, you've mortgaged 10 years of your 20s, which, if my math is correct, is all of your it's 20s. literally all uh, of <laughs> I, uh, I, I don't know what you can do. Uh, I think I, I was at a conference recently where I was talking to a life coach who said she specializes in talking with physicians who feel like they're trapped and don't actually like the, the career that they're in. Uh, this, is, this is a question that I've asked a few different physicians, but like... Uh, for, for people looking to a career in medicine, thinking that that's a thing that they want, how would you know if this actually was something that you were fit for, if it's something that you like, or if maybe you're just attracted to the idea that you could pull status with a, a car dealer? Uh, how, what, what made you realize that, that medicine was actually worth mortgaging 10 years of your 20s. Yeah, I think that like so many things in life, you don't know what you don't know. And that's just true all down the line. Like I thought going to med school, like I definitely wanted to do surgery. And then I realized that like that was not at all what I wanted. And I went into emergency medicine with no clue even of what wilderness medicine was. And now, you know, couldn't see myself at any other place doing anything else. And I think a piece of that is being confident is knowing your own desires enough to have a good sense of the global direction of your life. I knew that I needed something technical to do that had me interacting with people every day. If I was just doing a technical job in engineering in front of a computer screen or even prototyping, you know, but just with materials and not people, I would hate it, even though the technical work would be really interesting. And if I were just in a service industry that didn't have some kind of deeper technical component, I enjoy people enough that I would have fun, but it would be nowhere near as rewarding. And there aren't a lot of other things that blend those so well as medicine. Um, so I was pretty confident as a general trajectory that medicine is something I would enjoy. Uh, and I think that if you do the due diligence and experience some of the areas of medicine before you even jump on a pre-med track, so to speak, um, you can have a reasonable confidence that medicine is something you've got to, you would enjoy. How did you do that for yourself? It sounds like, uh, it sounds like you, you rolled the dice a little bit that you, you didn't, you weren't, you weren't fully sure and you, you couldn't possibly be fully sure uh, that medicine was going to scratch all these itches. And uh, you, you were pretty sure that just doing something technical would uh, do a little bit for you, but that, that, you need to be interacting with people. What was the, what was the exposure that you had to medicine that seemed like that was the, the highest probability choice? Yeah, there were friends. I kind of tapped as many family friends who were physicians as I could in the end of high school and in the beginning of college, just to, on breaks to just go see what it was like to be in an emergency department or in an operating room. And we don't have really, at least my family didn't have any close family friends who were physicians. And so I had to reach pretty far out into the network of our family 
to find people in the area who I could go shadow to better understand it. And I thought engineering was something towards the end of high school that I really thought is what I was going to want to do. And then, you know, like every present scholar had, you know, 15 majors and, you know, carried that indecision <laughs> on through all of undergrad. And then, you know, finally, junior year got some clarity that medicine was probably the thing that solved that equation the best. Let's talk a little bit about your 15 majors. What, who, who were you in college? What was the what was Luke's deal in uh, at SMU? God, my deal was just wanting to do everything. It was... Uh, I went in thinking that I might, I initially had dual applied to the Meadows School and to Deadman to do theater and to do either math or biology and was leaning towards a theater biology hybrid, which was going to be super tough because the Meadows curriculum just does not leave a lot of time for anything else. Uh, and then decided, because I had done theater in undergrad and thought that that was something that I at least wanted to continue for fun. Um, and realized that that with a conservatory style program like they do at Meadows just wasn't super viable if I really wanted to go hard on the other side of things too. And so I ended up settling on biology, German, and econ, uh, and math as the four majors. Um, and then ended up dropping math, which was the, one of the hardest and best decisions I have made in my academic career, which we could for sure talk about later. But, um, but yeah, those four were what I went in thinking, ended up coming out with econ biology and, uh, and econ biology and German as the three. Amazing. And such a, a, what a prototypical president scholar of being pulled in and interested in all these divergent directions of like theater and math. My gosh, how, how different could those two studies be? But uh, it's also like everyone then, in the PS program, which is so great. That's why they are yeah. still some oh, of the, why, the people I talk to the most. Yeah. That's why I love this group. Uh, talk to me about the, the hardest and best decision you made to drop math. That uh, Quitting something can be very hard. Uh, you, you certainly had the room to quit <laughs> having, having four majors and dropping one of them. Uh, I, I, I don't think anyone would, uh, would call you a, a slacker. What, what was behind that decision? I think like everyone who is in the PS program, everyone are are like super achievers who are used to achieving all the time and to like when you start something finishing it through to its end and not saying no and so you know doing four majors was just like this thing that i arbitrarily decided i was going to do uh, and then got to my fourth year and there was a class that they offered this was something i did not know at smu until that year uh was at the large hadron collider where there was going to be an equivalent of the lhc that was going to be built in Texas. And they were all of these world-class physicists who came to Texas in advance of this being done, anticipated that this was going to be built. Like some of the tunnels were already drilled for this. And then however, you know, funding falls through at that kind of scale, funding fell through. But many of these people had already transplanted their families. And so we just had this like amazing physics department that had no business being where it was. Uh, and one of them was teaching a theoretical physics class. And it was essentially like theoretical physics for dummies who like know calculus, but not a lot more. Uh, and I was like, that from these people would be such a cool class to learn. But to fit that in my schedule, I'm going to have to like drop partial differential equations or like, you know, something that I knew I was not going to need. It's, you know, interesting, but was not going to need in medicine. Uh, but it would require like, dropping the fourth major and this arbitrary goal I had set for myself. And when you pick an arbitrary goal and you've like committed all this time to doing it, it's super hard to say like that was based on nothing. And this other thing that's objectively going to give me more value is what I should do. Uh, and so I did, and that was the best class I took in all of my four years at SMU. It was a phenomenal class. Uh, and I think for me, it was a realization in everything I did in academics afterwards that like this whole mindset of just like achieving something to achieve it because you told yourself you're going to is total garbage. And the thing to follow is like what's really exciting to you, even if that means you have to course correct a goal that you had you know, thought was what you wanted to do at the outset. I love that methodology, and I think that makes the goals that you do end up pursuing so much more meaningful, knowing about yourself that you're not just going to single-mindedly pursue a goal because you said you were going to. Uh, you you have the capacity to, to question these goals if they're actually worthwhile. That, to me, means 
okay, for the, for the very difficult longer-term goals that you've followed through on, how much more valuable is it that knowing that you followed through on those and you were willing to question if that actually was the best way forward the entire time? So, like, medicine, I imagine, if that at any point had stopped making sense for you, I'm not getting the vibe from your personality that that would have been a, a decision that you would have been afraid of making. I think if at any point in this process you had realized, oh, actually, medicine is not the thing for me, uh, I, I think you would have figured out something else to do and, and dropped out. Uh, that, that, that to me points to, like, the, the goals that you have chosen to pursue are so much more valuable that, that you can trust yourself that the things that you're doing uh, actually are things that you want to pursue. Does that track? Definitely. Yeah, no, I think that's a very reasonable interpretation. The one difference I would say, you do have friends that have dropped out of medicine. The reason, there is almost no opportunity cost to dropping your fourth major, except a personal one. Hmm. If you have made the decision wrong on medicine, you can drop it after you take on, you know, a quarter million dollars of debt. Um, But Hmm. that's a huge opportunity cost to suddenly now have this debt that you have to make up without the guarantee of, you know, the, the profession that you have studied towards and invested all of this intellectual capital in yourself to be able to, to attain. So for me, I was, I was never in that position. I loved medicine, but I've, I've definitely seen people stay in it because they don't feel there's any other way that they could pay that debt back, which is super sad. That is sad. And that's fair. The, the opportunity cost for changing your profession is higher than dropping a class and dropping a single major that you didn't necessarily care about to, to begin with. Uh, I remember that whole Large Hadron Collider thing happening in Texas. That's I'd never put that together, that that's the reason why SMU had such a stellar physics department. That's very interesting. Yeah, solid choice. I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, on this multi-potential track, something that you've lamented is that uh, medicine is very jealous mistress. It, it compresses the amount of time that you're able to have to pursue other things. Uh, and yet you have still found time to pursue one of the most interesting passions of any person uh, that I know of this very intense traveling and uh, like adventure style traveling. And when you, when you travel, when you go on a trip, you're not going to like a resort and, and, uh, you know, sipping margaritas on a, on a beach. You go and like, you know, hike the W trail in Patagonia or go uh, scuba dive or go, uh, ice climbing or go uh, hiking in the in the Adirondacks or uh, not at, oh the the oh the mountain range I forgot the the one that you went to uh, with Tori. Uh, what's behind that? What's uh, why why is traveling uh, the what seems to be the the other biggest passion in your life? Yeah, that was a huge allure of SMU to me. Was the two study abroad so just incorporate that are just given to you in the PS program. Uh, mm-hmm. And I, again, I think it's kind of a common thread that if you really love new experiences and you have all these interests, then travel is the easiest way to see all of those things and to see them easily. And I think adventure travel is, you know, it's not that it has to be dangerous or adventurous. It's just that the things that are new and interesting, a, a reasonable heuristic or shortcut to get to those is to find a arbitrarily difficult skill. And typically at the end of that chain, there's something super cool that you've never experienced before, be it, you know, ice climbing a frozen waterfall or be it paragliding or, or whatever it is. So, so adventure travel mm-hmm. to me is a great way to shortcut to something that is guaranteed to be new and exciting. You're, uh, you're seeking the, the new experiences. I like that. Uh, I, I see that as a, an extension of this multi-potentialite spirit of you're, you, you need to be, engaged with the thing that you're doing if if you become complacent if you're just drifting along i, I see you becoming uh very bored i'm reminded of the uh the alex honnell documentary free solo where it seems like he's just he just needs more stimulation than normal people he's like he has to put himself in these situations where he's midway up uh el cap in in uh in california to with no rope uh, to, to be able to feel alive just because he's <laughs> at a, it, it, it takes a lot to stimulate him to, to put him in these uh, unusual circumstances. And there, there's something you said to me that has become a mantra in my life of to, to have fun, you need to be doing things that stupid people could die from. <laughs> I love that heuristic because like, yeah, it's, uh, there, there's a, I, I got really interested in paramotoring recently, which is this sport of you, you take a big 
uh, paragliding wing, and you strap a huge fan to your back, and you j you can just fly in the air like a bird. It's amazing. And comparing that to something like uh, oh, uh, para oh, I forgot the the name of it. There's a there's another term that sounds a lot like uh, paragliding that you're just drugged behind the back of a boat, and you have no autonomy. You can't choose where you're going. Uh, para it's not parasailing. Yeah. Oh, no, no. Yeah, it is parasailing. So in, in parasailing, you could be a sack of potatoes. Uh, it would be very difficult for a stupid person to die parasailing. Uh, and it would be very easy for a stupid person to die uh, paramotoring. And so <laughs> as a heuristic, th this is maybe not the, the most uh, polite way to describe it, but that heuristic works for me also of, uh, to, to get the stimulation to know that there's some danger involved in the thing that I'm doing. Uh, I'd like to know that some people have died from it. <laughs> that it's it's danger enough, dangerous enough that it, it it is demanding my full attention. Uh, so uh, thank you for putting that mantra in my brain. That's uh, yes, I I agree. It's much. I I feel like I do need to be doing things that stupid people could die from to to be having fun. This is going to be a great cliff to play at one of our funerals in the next couple years. <laughs> <laughs> they died doing what they loved. Uh, <laughs> flaunting their intellectual superiority. <laughs> <laughs> they were both dumber That's than they thought. Congratulations. <laughs> um, I'm so happy that you found this fellowship in wilderness medicine because this seems like such a natural extension of your two huge interests of travel in this very extreme way of uh, not just flying to different places, but doing very difficult things there, mountaineering and rock climbing and uh, that sort of thing with medicine. Uh, how did you find out about this that, that that was a thing when did when did you start directing yourself towards this path of wilderness medicine yeah well, i should say that adventure travel is probably new as of med school to me in undergrad it was really just travel and you know spending nine months abroad continuously in europe and a little bit of time over in turkey uh filled kind of it kind of scratched the itch of cultural travel that i really really was looking for when i went into undergrad and then as I moved away from ballroom dance and uh, the other hobbies kind of of undergrad and got more into climbing, uh, it just became easier to push that skill set while abroad. And so I think almost by necessity, a lot of the trips abroad became adventure trips because here in the States, we don't have a lot of the huge fins of rock to get to that you can climb on or, or whatever else you may need. Uh, but wilderness medicine, to me, as that interest kind of grew in med school and early residency, uh, kind of came to the forefront because it's one of the only, it is the only thing that blends adventure travel like that with medicine. And I, I knew also that I, I missed research. I think that medical school research, much like early PhD research, you're kind of doing the grunt work at the behest of some other person who has the grand idea of what we're driving towards in terms of an outcome and how we're going to push the state of the science forward. But when you get to the point of finishing residency or even in residency, and you can conceptualize an idea for how to make something new or different in the world, and then delegate out to other people, the intellectually uninteresting piece of that, and then just get to do all of the fun part that is designing and seeing the results, suddenly research becomes extremely appealing again, because you can, you can hypothesize changes and then see them happen. And the idea that that could happen in a wilderness space, like new ways to go to high altitude or new devices for mountaineers to take up you know, high altitude peaks is just the coolest thing. I think that, yeah, I think that there is so much immediate interest or appeal that you can describe to anyone, right? If I were like, hey, Christian, we've got a, a new device we want to try. We're going to put on the backs of mountaineers going up Everest. Would you be interested in going to the base camp of Everest and you know seeing how something like that works? And like the average person, I think would would be interested in that. So, to me, wilderness medicine's appeal is not a a hard thing for most people to grasp. Unlike maybe some more uh, wet work or technical research bases. That makes so much sense. Yeah, if you can be pushing forward science and also hanging out at the base camp of Everest in Nepal, that would be wild. <laughs> Drinking some yak tea and then actually pushing science forward and then you send your numbers to some lab monkey in the States who's stuck in their indoor lab. And uh, yeah, that'd be that'd be amazing. Uh, so uh, uh, along those lines, what, what are research questions that you're interested in? You mentioned uh, high altitude as a, a 
question that you're pursuing? What what sorts of research topics are you looking to explore in this fellowship? Yeah, so within the domain of wilderness medicine, which really looks at the way that humans perform and the way human physiology works in any extreme environment, I am particularly interested in the high altitude element of wilderness medicine. So what goes on in very cold environments at very high altitude. And previously, the biggest overlap in that segment was with uh, space researchers, because high altitude uh, air travel and then space flight actually has a lot of physiologic mirrors uh, that are useful from a research standpoint for people like NASA or the US government, sending people to altitude or up in planes to very, very high heights. Um, and so before COVID, that was where a lot of the research was going to lie. And there will still be some time in fellowship that's down with NASA and looking at those connections. But COVID has mirrored high altitude in some ways that have been very unexpected for the medical community. Uh, and so some of the earliest studies that we'll be doing while we're still in this travel lockdown are actually going to be looking at applying some high altitude treatment techniques to COVID patients to see if we can mm. if we can gather some better outcomes, given how some of their underlying physiology seems to be similar. Interesting. I'm thinking like hyperbaric oxygen chambers. Would that help? Hyperbaric oxygen is, is one we use for dive medicine, not so much in high altitude. Um, there's been talk of using acetazolamide, which is the acclimatization medicine that we give to people before they trek to altitude. Uh, there's been talk mm -hmm. of using nitrous oxide, uh, which is not used so much in altitude, but for similar physiologic reasons we think may work well in COVID. Um, so without getting too off in the weeds technical, um, yeah, it's just a, a lot of interesting therapeutic overlap that I did not anticipate going into this fellowship. That's fun. The, this this adventurous, like, thinking about what happens to people in very cold temperatures at very high altitudes would have overlap of helping people with COVID. That that's... I, I, I guess fundamentally, like you're you're studying how this respiratory machine works under stress, and uh, I could see how there could be overlap if that stress is caused by the weird environment that you're in, if it's caused by a, a virus breaking apart your lungs. Yeah, I think that's a that's a tremendous way to distill it. I like that a lot. Small tangent: in my biohacking circles, sleeping in hyperbaric oxygen chambers is a thing that people talk about that might be good for you. What's your What's your hot take on that? <laughs> Should I start sleeping in a hyperbaric oxygen chamber? Um, it is not for everyone. <laughs> you, know, a lot of pro athletes will do it. People who want to perform you know, really well, people who live at high altitudes, generally have a greater oxygen carrying capacity, and so when they are at altitude or come down from altitude, they can perform better. Um, nothing in the realm of human physiology is without its downsides. And so, you know, what I would say to that is if you're spending most of your time not at altitude, uh, millions of your ancestors have died off so that you can have the, <laughs> the blood oxygen carrying capacity that you have. And, you know, be that that people at altitude may have higher rates of hematologic cancers or malignancy than people um, who don't need to cycle their blood cells that much uh, do or, or whatever else it may be. Uh, no, you probably don't need to be, unless you're planning travel to high altitude with us next year, which I would highly recommend. Oh, yeah, don't tell me. <laughs> I understand I don't need to do that. I think the argument is uh, if high altitude is bad for you, and normal altitude is good for you, then going more in that direction would be better for you. If you can have pressure that's even higher than it would be at sea level, you're getting more oxygen and then uh, something, something, you live forever. Oh, I'm sorry. I totally, I totally misheard you. You were saying hyperbaric sleeping, not hypoxia sleeping. No, yes. Hy hypoxia sleeping, I think would be bad. Oh, okay. Was it, hypoxia sleeping is, is also done to stimulate your body to produce more oxygen carrying capacity. So if you're a, a pro mm -hmm. athlete and you want to go have a little bump, you can, you know, sleep in a hypoxia tent and then maybe Or have... Deadpool. I think that's how he got his superpowers, right? I have sure. Absolutely. And if if not <laughs> Did you not watch Deadpool? We'll pitch it to Marvel. I'm I'm pretty sure they put him in a chamber where he like didn't have enough oxygen and then his skin got all bubbly and weird and then he got superpowers. I've seen Deadpool and I, I don't remember. This has been a long time ago. No. I have no idea. Okay. I trust well, you uh, implicitly. 
if I'm correct, I'll include a, lip in, uh, a clip in the in the show notes. Uh, okay, yes, hyperbaric oxygen sleeping. How, what, what's your take on that? Hyperbaric oxygen sleeping, I have not read almost anything on. Um, okay. Yeah, could be could be done. Um, you know, risk of hyperbarics for too long is increased free radical formation, which could cause cancer at higher rates. If you were to do it every, I don't know of any studies that have looked at people who have done that for years and years or decades, but my back of the note card theorized downside to that would probably be higher rates of malignancy of cancer. High rates of cancer. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Okay. Well, I'll uh, I'll keep you updated and my experiments. If this would be <laughs> what happens. This would be a great research topic for the critical health blog. So I may I may have to take this on and circle back to you. Oh, if you could uh, have you could have research buy me my hyperbaric oxygen chamber. That'd be even better. Let's talk a little bit about COVID. You have been on the front lines of this since the start. First of all, on behalf of society, thank you for keeping us safe and uh, keeping the people of Cleveland healthy and. Uh, doing your part to combat this virus it's great i i have done almost nothing to help my community uh you've done a lot um we have a vaccine this podcast christian i think you've you've done more than to give yourself credit for (laughs) oh yes the the reach of this podcast i don't mean to brag but this uh this podcast has reached tens of people at least uh what so given this this incredible reach uh of (laughs) the influence you could have on COVID, there's a lot of conflicting information there's a lot of uh different views being expressed uh i am very close with people who uh are suspicious that the vaccine is unsafe and they're not planning on getting it for a long time uh i have talked with people who believe that COVID is a hoax and that it's uh, a government conspiracy to try to gain more control of the population being on the front lines being someone who has treated what i imagine is hundreds of COVID cases uh, what's your take on the whole situation? How are you framing this pandemic? Yeah, you know, it's the amazing thing I, and I think we were talking about this in a conversation recently, is it amazes me how this has become an ideological or a political battle rather than a battle of science, which is heartbreaking mm-hmm. because this is something that we're only going to beat with science, not with blind ideology or blind politics. Uh, and the science is entirely unambiguous on this. And no one who I've met who is a disbeliever of COVID has disbelieved it when they're dying from it and need a breathing tube. So, you know, that is that does <laughs> seem to be the final common pathway of belief is that uh, when it's affecting you personally, suddenly a lot of people have had their come to Jesus moments. Um, even people amazingly who have just needed to come into the hospital and you, know, everyone who comes into the hospital has to go to a COVID floor or a non-COVID floor so we don't infect people who didn't have COVID previously. And the number of people who have refused swabs, who have then accepted one and tacitly demonstrated their belief in COVID when they were told they would be put on a COVID floor is mind-blowing to me. You know, I think it is amazing to me how intellectually disingenuous some people are when it when it comes to something like this that, that goes against their political worldview. Um, it's it's disappointing and it's it's part of why we're seeing the spike that we're seeing now that, that was predicted at this point in time. And we probably will continue to see as the new year's bump fully comes into the hospitals. Hmm. So there's, that's funny that go ahead. No, no, no. It's funny that, uh, for a patient coming in who refuses the swab to get a COVID test, <laughs> if they're just told, okay, well then you're going to go on the COVID positive floor. <laughs> that's, that's enough to, to be like, oh, okay, okay. I'll, I'll take the test. Uh, that's, that's interesting. Uh, you have gotten the vaccine, I think. Is that right? First dose. Yep. Second dose is just over a week away. Great. So your your uh, your mind is under control of the nanobots that have uh, infused your blood. Is that is that right? Yeah. Do you? I don't use Chrome anymore. I don't know if you're a Microsoft Edge fan or you use Internet Explorer. I've actually oh, I've actually reinstalled okay, okay. Windows ninety eight. This was uh this was Bill Gates' long con. <laughs> Make up a <laughs> it's all it's all just to regain browser supremacy. Oops. Oh, that's so funny. <laughs> he devised a hoax of a pandemic and then developed a vaccine with nanobots to make you use Edge over Microsoft that is or Google Google Chrome. That's uh that's fantastic. <laughs> He's a sharp cookie, Bill. Yes. What uh? What's your 
view on what's going to be happening in the next few months. We have a vaccine now, uh, and there are multiple strange strains of COVID coming out. You've you've been one of the most up to date people uh, I know of this scientifically, of like keeping up with the papers and and what's going on. What how do you how do you see this playing out over the next few months? Yeah, and the good news is the vaccine should still be effective. So the vaccine targets the spike protein, um, and these of the seventeen mutations that we're seeing in the new British strain of the virus that has put Britain back on lockdown. I mean, it is it has really shut their country down entirely. Uh, and it is here in the mm -hmm. States. It has popped up both in, in Colorado initially and now in California. Uh, of the 17 mutations, none of them affect the spike protein. So at least theoretically, the vaccine should provide equal measure of coverage for both the new strain that's out now and uh, the previous strain of COVID that we were fighting. Uh, it's not that the new strain causes more severe disease. It's just that it's much easier to spread. Um, and so the mm. rate at which we see it tear through the population will be likely even worse than it's been so far. Um, vaccine rollouts have been spotty and have not been quite as organized as we would like. And so whether we beat, it's almost a race now between this new strain and how quickly it spreads and how quickly we can roll out those doses of vaccine that we do have and get new vaccines you know, to the front line so people can get them. Mm. The Vaccines that we're seeing also only have their peak efficacy after almost a month. Um, you've got to get the initial dose. You're only about 50% covered after the first two weeks. And then depending on whether you're Pfizer or Moderna, you're looking at three to four weeks for your second dose. So even when people do start getting vaccines, there's still a susceptibility period of, you know, even up to a month after that, that they're still at risk. So we've, we've got a number of months more in this at least. What would you say to people who are feeling uneasy about the prospect of having a vaccine that was developed so quickly? Uh, is this something that you recommend everyone get as soon as they can, as soon as it's available? Uh, do, do you see legitimacy in the argument that uh, this, this is sort of unexplored territory in the realm of vaccines and uh, you should try to hold off as long as you can? Uh, what would you say to someone who was, who was apprehensive about the idea that they would need to get this vaccine? Yeah, I think that's one. I think it's a great instinct. I think that being skeptical of anything is entirely reasonable as long as that's informed by data. Um, this is one of the most amazing technological developments in our lifetime. It is an mRNA vaccine, which is an intrinsically hard thing to do. And it is one of the fastest vaccine rollouts we have ever seen, period, which is which has taken a mobilization of resources um, in medicine that is almost unprecedented and has been really incredible. Um, the data from both the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines is are reasonable studies. And in terms of the quality of data that they are being randomized controlled trials with tens of thousands of patients in them, it's a very high quality of evidence. And there really has not been any impressive harm shown from uh, the vaccines themselves in patients, really, you know, anaphylaxis, a severe allergic reaction in patients we already knew were predisposed to get those anaphylactic reactions is the mm -hmm. real negative that we can see. Uh, and that's in, you know, a few patients out of 30,000 or so in those studies. Uh, the risks of COVID, on the other hand, uh, are huge and sweeping. And while a lot of people aren't symptomatic, the rates of that adversely affecting someone are tremendously higher than any conceivable um, issues we're seeing with the vaccine, even with the new waves of people who've been getting it. So I guess my, the distillation of that would be to say, it's very reasonable to be skeptical. The data that we have so far is, is good data, uh, and all of it is very reassuring about the quality of the vaccine. So I would have no hesitation in saying that everyone should get the vaccine who has the chance to get it. Thank you. That is a clip that I plan to send to uh, a lot of people. Cool. <laughs> yeah, and, and I think it's those people are also welcome on. to reach out. You know, a lot of people have had very detailed questions. I've had people reach out who are pregnant, planning to get pregnant, who have various uh, individual health conditions they were concerned might interact with the vaccine. And people mm -hmm. are always welcome to reach out directly to. I am also happy to answer personally any questions that people have about it. While we're on this line of conversation, are there any other frequently asked questions about COVID that you get that? Uh, you, you think would benefit a lot of people? The pregnancy one is huge. Um, 
you know, yes, it appears to be safe in pregnancy. It's not something we've been able to study, but there's not a great theoretical reason why it should pose any issue whatsoever. And the risks of COVID to a fetus are likely much higher, uh, although also kind of unknown. That's probably the biggest one that I get from people. Um, the other one being, should I get the vaccine if I've had COVID? Um, the answer there is, it's probably still effective. It's certainly not going to cause any harm. We think that the immunity from COVID infection probably lasts 90 days, but we don't know for sure. Uh, and there would not be a harm in getting the vaccine after that anyway. Um, it just might not do you the benefit uh, that it would have had you not had COVID before. So, Interesting. If, you, if you've had COVID before, you're only immune to re-getting COVID for the next 90 days. Is that right? So we don't, we don't know how long it confers immunity and how long it confers antibodies. And so you may not have, as, because you have antibodies, you may not have, uh, you may have a bigger response. Anecdotally, the people I've talked to who have had the vaccine after COVID have had a bigger immune response to the vaccine. Um, hmm. And so it's not that you wouldn't have long-term immunity from the vaccine. Um, you may just have more side effects or you may not get as much of the benefit. Okay. And the, the promise of the vaccine is that you're immune for life after you've had both shots? Is that the idea? No. You know, so we would hope so. Um, and maybe that's true to this strain of COVID. You know, different vaccines need boosters at different rates. Uh, things like the flu that mutate so rapidly they require a new vaccine every year are also a thing. And so where coronavirus is going to fall into this strain is probably closer on the spectrum of the flu. Um, if this hangs around in various iterations, we may need to you know, do new vaccine cycles on a yearly or every two-year basis like we do for certain other diseases. Um, that's a huge question mark going forward that we don't know. Cool. Okay. It, it sounds like it's likely that this becomes a yearly vaccine cycle like the flu that... Uh, We've seen it mutate. Uh, the The spike protein, though, is not mutating. So, uh, in this in this season of COVID, uh, the current vaccine should be effective on the strains that are currently popular. And because it's mutating, uh, this could be a vaccine that you get. You know, maybe when you get your flu shot every year, you also get your your COVID shot. That would be my best guess, with the full disclosure that I'm not a virologist or a vaccine developer. So, well, I can say it's definitely <laughs> it's definitely viable for the COVID we are seeing now and the mutation we have seen now yeah we'll see that's fair i'm, I'm looking for the hot take from the uh the wilderness <laughs> medicine <laughs> what do i need to be able to scale everest luke i'm, I'm looking for the vaccine that'll uh that'll take me up there man if you find it let me know <laughs> that's funny uh th this is great i'm like uh, you you i think are one of the most intellectually rigorous and honest people that I know in this sort of thing and seem not to be uh, insofar as, as a person can have no uh, strong ideological bents. Uh, you, you seem to be very focused on like the literature. You're, you're one of the few people I know who, when talking about something that you have an opinion on, will cite scientific studies of you've gone back to the uh, NIH database of studies and looked at the, the actual science that people have done. That's a, that's a habit I'm still working on picking up from you. That's a, a, something I like to cultivate more in my life. Of you know, I know this thing, and I know it because I read the study on it. And in as much as you can know anything, that's this is as sure as I could be. Uh, where did that come from? Why? Why do you do that? Why do you? Why do you look things up so rigorously? Why? Why is it not enough for you to to stop where most people stop? Of like, okay, well, you know, most of my friends believe this thing, and. Uh, I heard this from a person of authority. Uh, what 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 pushes you to be digging deeper in those sorts of questions? I think a, a huge element of it is just growing up with the people I did. You know, Paul, my brother, is very much that way, and that was very much a staple of the conversations we had when we were younger, and the family in general, uh, and you know, even friends going on through. We had conversations like this all the time in college. I think that. At some point, a lot of people develop a shorthand for like, you know, all right, I don't need to like question everything and do that anymore. Uh, but I've, I've just found that to be an incredibly useful way to look at the world, to always kind of try to be able to build things up from first principles. So, hmm. so I don't know why I'm this way, Christian, is my short answer. <laughs> <laughs> well, I like it a lot. And uh, please keep doing it. I, I see, I see uh, that motivating force in you being the thing that's that's pushing you towards wanting to push forward medical research that uh, 
and to do it in a fun way. Uh, it, it, uh, you're, you're a very aligned person. Uh, I, I feel like I understand your motivations. Are like, you like exciting things and you like uh, intellectual honesty and uh, you like medicine and start combining all this thing. Okay, yes, of course, wilderness medicine. You're going to push forward the scientific knowledge of what people know and you're going to do it in this fun and exciting way. And in the process of doing that, you're practicing medicine and helping people to be healthy enough that they can do more exciting things. Uh, it's, a, it's a very cool life you're living. I dig it. Uh, what is the next few years of that path going to look like for you? You start your fellowship, uh, I think, at the end of next summer. Mm -hmm. uh, where are you going? Where, what are you going to be doing? How long is that? What, what's that landscape look like? Yeah, so I'll be going to uh, Mass General. Mass General is one of the – Harvard has a huge network of teaching hospitals that it's slowly eaten up over the years, and Mass General is one of theirs. Um, and so they, the benefit of that is that they're very well connected, especially with a lot of national entities. Um, so I will be spending, hopefully, fingers crossed, six months of that time out of Boston. Um, so half my fellowship year will be in Boston practicing medicine with them. And then the other half will be out doing research and just learning around the country, around the world. Um, two weeks of that, I think, will be with NASA um, doing high uh, space medicine and actually doing some hyperbarics work, hopefully in their dive center, where they do the space station simulations. Um, so going down and seeing how they run oh, all the amazing. medicine on the on the astronauts that go down. Yeah, uh, which should be super fun. And that actually was not a piece of this fellowship until last year when the current fellow just said, hey, to the fellowship director, do you know anyone at NASA? I would really love to learn some space medicine. And being super well connected, he said, oh, yeah, I know some people. And then called down to NASA, <laughs> and then he just went to go do it, which is, so I think the, the most exciting thing to me of fellowship is Stuart Harris, who is the fellowship director, is just the world's most humble human being, but also the world's most well-connected human being. And to have this one-on-one -on -one relationship with him for a year and then to carry that forward into the career is going to be really, really special. He is just an amazing person who I feel very privileged to know. Um, so two weeks will be there, hopefully with them. Um, two weeks will be spending with the Army doing high angle ropes rescue. Um, so all of the Army medics who go into high altitude or climbing or high angle environments is what they call it, have to learn rope rescue work. Um, so it'll be two weeks with the Army doing that. A month on Denali with the forest rangers doing their mountain rescue uh, on Denali. And then three months out in Nepal doing high altitude research, which is kind of going to be the primary focus of the year. Um, we have a couple devices that will remain undisclosed as of now, uh, but that we want to take and test up there for a few months. And then our last month will be, where was the last one? The last of the six is a toss-up between two. Um, so MGH has a great relationship with National Geographic, and one of the months you can do is they do a, a trip around the world uh, to all of these UNESCO World Heritage Sites, and you can be the expedition doctor on that trip, which really means that you're the concierge personal medicine doctor for all these wealthy people who have paid National Geographic to fly them <laughs> on a private jet around the world. Uh, or you can spend a month being a real expedition doctor in Siberia with the National Science Foundation in like Nowheresville, Siberia, where it gets like bitterly cold and you're really practicing like remote, frigid, out in the middle of nowhere medicine. So I think of those two, the, the Siberia is the one that I'll be going for. Um, so yeah, that'll be the six kind of crazy fun months of fellowship that aren't spent doing regular old medicine that was, in Boston. That was all six months? That was yeah. six months of your life? Oh, my gosh. It's all six months. <laughs> that sounds like some high-quality activities that uh, stupid people could die uh, doing. That's, <laughs> you're going to be living your best life. My gosh, that's amazing. Holy cow. That oh, or Ice Cube no in Siberia, so one fun. of the two. Yeah. And then is that the, the entire fellowship, I think you said, was like a year or two total? It's a year. There's the opportunity to extend it to. Um, if the opportunities were right, I would I would certainly consider that. So. Okay. So there's what what happens in the second six months of that fellowship? The other half of the year is working essentially working to earn your keep. Uh, so you'd be in Boston practicing emergency medicine, teaching residents at MGH. Uh, and so the way that the academic medicine works essentially is that. No one in their right mind is going to pay you to do those six months of things I just described for free. And so 
you spend the other six months working in their hospital in Boston, and that helps them fund the travel that you do otherwise to further your academic career. Got it. Okay, that makes sense. And that's a great trade-off. Of course I would do that. I would work yeah. for six months like doing practically the, the thing you're already doing right now to, to pay, hang out with NASA astronauts and go to Siberia. And oh my God, that, that sounds like a blast. Uh, what's the, okay, so we're, we're a year out now. You've had these amazing experiences. You've made all these connections at NASA and uh, the NIH scientists in Siberia. Uh, I imagine a year from now, you're going to have a very different perspective on this, having gone through all these experiences. But uh, where where do you see your life going after that? What what's what's the the thing that then uh, this wilderness fellowship will enable you to be able to do? Mm. I would love to help. There are so many wilderness. Uh, so many. There are a couple. There are 13 wilderness medicine programs in the country right now. There are two or three more popping up. Uh, would love to head out west to be closer to mountains. Would love to help get a new wilderness medicine fellowship off the ground, uh, of which there are a few that are starting up, or to fold into one that already exists and bring more of a research bent and a high altitude bent that they haven't had before. Um, so the next step would be to look at those places that are hiring faculty and try to go on as an academic teaching attending in a place with a wilderness medicine program and continue that research from a different place, preferably out west. Sounds like a plan. You're you're gonna continue living a very exciting life. I'm uh, very excited to continue keeping tabs on you and keep tagging along on some of your less intense uh, trips. Yeah, come to no, come to Siberia. I, It'll be great. You know, you know, as tempting as that is, I uh, I look forward to seeing the pictures from Siberia. And if you wanted to go ice climbing again, I uh, in nice and comfy Michigan, I uh, I'd be. I'd be down for that. Uh, there's a pain threshold in these sorts of things that I think, I think your pain threshold is much higher than mine. Uh, I draw the line at Siberia. That's a uh, that's a that's a no from me. That's a uh, reasonable Luke, place to so draw much. a line. I I respect that. <laughs> you know, uh, I have never considered you to be a reasonable person. So uh, it's have fun in Siberia. I think you're going to have a blast. Uh, thank you so much for this conversation. This has been great. For people who would like to reach out to you, maybe some baby president scholars who are hearing about these tales from your life thinking, oh my gosh, I want everything that Luke has. I'm, I want to be there in Siberia. That's that's how I'm going to live an exciting life. Or maybe other people in medicine, uh, maybe people with a, a wilderness medicine bent who'd love to tag along with you, who would be good travel buddies to Siberia. Uh, what is a good way to get in touch with you? Yeah, email I think is the easiest way. Just luke.apisa, A-P-I-S-A, at gmail.com, first name dot last name, uh, and I will see it sometime within a month of when that email arrives, fingers crossed. Not, <laughs> I am a certi certified 29-year-old boomer, um, <laughs> and yeah, that, that is 100% the best way. And happy I to answer anything about medicine or deciding to go into medicine. Um, that was a hard decision for me and a lot of people. So I think that will probably be one of the biggest ones. If you respond to anything I send you during that six-month window, I will be disappointed. I'll take that as a signal that you are not fully living your best life, <laughs> just being immersed in this uh, incredible, dangerous environment. Uh, fantastic. Thank you very much. I'll see you on your next adventure. And hey, P.S. Love. Oh, P.S. Love, Christian. <laughs>